This morning, we're going to read from uh, Luke chapter one. This is going to be Zachariah's song. Um, if, you're, if you've got access to one of the black Bibles in the pews, it's on page 831. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he has to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. They, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our, all our days, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning. It is great to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time. I'm so glad you're with us. And this is the second Sunday of Advent. We're so thankful, so grateful to be spending this season with you. Now, I know a lot of you have not celebrated or participated in Advent before. And so one of the things that we did, our, our leaders collaborated on this Advent Guide. And so it's just digital this year, but we've created an Advent Guide for you. You can find the link to that on the back of your bulletin. But it's the very first line of that Advent Guide in the introduction that says, the posture of Advent is expectant waiting. And Pastor Mark just talked about that, but the posture of Advent is expectant waiting. And it's actually one of the hardest postures in life to take. We, we struggle to wait, I struggle to wait, you know, in a, in a busy world, in an active world, I, I struggle to be still. But expectant waiting is, is more than just like being, you know, in, in line at the drive through at Starbucks on West Broadway, and you know you're just going to be there a long time. I'm not in the line, but I'm just watching the thing as I go by. It's not just like waiting and, and killing time, but expectant waiting is a, it's a full waiting. It's, it's an active waiting. It's a waiting where, where you're still doing stuff. You're still, you're still doing the things that you're, you're meant to be doing it to, to prepare for something. It's an expectant waiting. And so, for example, maybe you're, you're preparing for a new job, but you still have to finish a class before you can graduate. And so you're, you're waiting for the job, but you're, you're still doing all the things that are required to get you there. 
Maybe you know that you've got a, a child on the way, and so you're, you're waiting for the child, but there are all these things you need to do to prepare for the child. As we get older and the pace of life slows down and the, the milestones sort of spread out more, the, the posture of expectant waiting becomes more and more common for us. It becomes a regular part of life. And if we think about Israel, at the, at the time of Jesus' coming, Israel had been waiting 460 years for a word from the Lord. Think about that, 460 years with no new prophets, no new scripture. I mean, just, just total darkness. They're, they're still going through the motions. They're still going to the temple. They're still following God's law, but they are, are waiting in silence in the darkness. They're probably wondering, as we often do, has God left us? Has he forgotten about us? Is he going to be faithful to his promises or has he moved on to something else? They're probably identifying with all those psalms that say, how long, O Lord, how long? But especially the Israelites that we meet in Luke 1 and 2, they, they continue to do the things that put them in the presence of God. See, they're not just going through the, the motions as a sort of rote obedience, but they are doing the things that keep them in the presence of God. They're going to worship. They're going to the temple. They're putting the word before them. They're, they're remaining in this covenant community. And all the time they're wondering and they're waiting, when is God going to suddenly break through? When is God going to suddenly break through? And perhaps you can resonate with that in a really deep way this morning. And Cam opened up last week in Luke 1 and 2, and we see these four spontaneous songs of praise in Luke 1 and 2. And since there's four Sundays in Advent, we're looking at one of these songs in each of the weeks, and I'm sure somebody has done this series before, but we feel like we found like the holy grail of Advent series. It's just too perfect. So this week we're doing the song of Zechariah. Next week for our Christmas service, we'll be doing the song of the angels, the song of heaven. But each week, what we want to do is lift our eyes just for a moment to try to remember the, the meaning of Christmas in, in the midst of this, this busy and active season, to, to remind ourselves of the posture of expectant waiting, to remember that Jesus became as we are so that we might become as he, are, as he is. And so today we're looking at three things, why the old man sings, you just heard the passage, why the old man sings. Second, what the young child means. And then third, how we can respond. So first of all, why does the old man sing? And if you weren't with us last week in, in Luke 1, we see the angel making all sorts of appearances. The angel appears to Zechariah and says that your wife, Zechariah, though she's old in years, I mean, they're probably 60, 65 years old, she will give birth to a son and he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will go before the Messiah. And yet, and yet Zechariah, he, he, he expresses doubt. He, he asks, how could this possibly be? And the, the angel hits mute on him. And he loses his voice. The angel then appears to Mary and she, she is obedient. She is, she's faithful. She overwhelms. She, she overflows with joy. And so when she sees her, her cousin Elizabeth, she sings this magnificent song, this beautiful song that we looked at last week, Mary's song. And so nine months go by, Elizabeth is giving birth, and her husband Zechariah, the, the faithful priest, he's, he's unable to speak, but it says this in verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. 
Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared in her joy. And so in in keeping with tradition, on the eighth day, they go to circumcise the boy, and that's also when they would do the naming. And so they ask uh, Elizabeth, what do you want to name him, assuming that it will be Zechariah, which was common in that day to use the father's name for the firstborn son, and yet she says, his name is John. Now, they, they know that we better ask Zechariah about this because if there's ever a time to pull a quick one and change the name, I mean, it's when he can't speak, you know, and so they ask for his input. They bring him, you know, a, a writing tablet, which in that day, I don't know, must have been like the first generation iPad. He scribbles out, same thing. His name is John. Now, what we can assume is that Zechariah was probably also deaf, that the Lord had taken his hearing as well because they, they had to write things down for him. He, he couldn't overhear what was said from Elizabeth. And so think about Zechariah in this moment. For nine months, he's been unable to speak and unable to hear. This is a faithful priest in the house of the Lord. This is a good guy. And yet when the angel appeared to him after all these years, this is something he probably was dying to experience And when that moment came, he expressed doubt. And so for nine months, Zechariah has been wrestling with this, wrestling with his own faithlessness. And yet when he says, his name is John, there's something incredible about this. There's something that's a a remarkable act of faith in this because he's saying this, this child is not primarily mine. It's an act of actually releasing the child to the Lord. He's saying, this is not merely the son of Zechariah, this is somebody far greater. His name is John. And it says in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And then it says, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. So we'll hit pause right there and realize what a a magnificent moment this is. 460 years of silence, all of this darkness, all of this expectant waiting for something to happen. After all of the darkness, all of the silence, all of a sudden these angels are coming. Things are happening. God is breaking through. And this child, he's not the Messiah, but he is the one who will pave the way for the Messiah. And so Zechariah begins to sing, and this song is called the Benedictus, which is from the word blessed in Latin. And blessed be the name of our Lord, or praise be to the name of our God. And so last week we looked at the Magnificat, this week's the Benedictus. We're doing our part to keep Latin alive. It's not all on us, but we're doing it. And the song has two parts. First, the blessing of God, and then the blessing of the child. The blessing of God, it sounds like one of the Psalms of the Old Testament. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so Zechariah is saying, praise God, because he has not forgotten his people. Praise God, he has not remained quiet forever. He is not, in fact, far off, but he is with us and he is breaking through even now. And this song, it emphasizes two themes that that Mary's song also emphasized, God's power and God's mercy. In verse 71, God has brought salvation from our enemies to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve Him without fear. 
And so Zechariah is singing by his mighty hand, God has lifted us out of slavery, out of oppression, and, and brought us into a spacious place. God is all powerful that he can do this. And yet God is also full of mercy. Verse 72, he says, God has saved us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. And so in saving his people and sending John as this sort of final prophet and, and giving us the Messiah, God is demonstrating both his power and his mercy. And we see in the character of God that these things go together seamlessly. There's no discontinuity between power and mercy in God. Now, the second thing is the blessing of the child. Zechariah blesses this child, John, in verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, to shine on those living in darkness, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He knows his scriptures well. And what he realizes in this young child is that John is, is a sort of bridge between the old and the new. John is a, a sort of final prophet of the Old Testament, and yet he's also the transition into the New Testament. It's why the, the Scriptures emphasize how old Je uh, Zechariah is, how old Elizabeth is. It's because they represent the Old Covenant. That's why I can call him an old man. I'm not just calling him an old man, but it's theologically significant. The old is gone. The new is coming. And it's John, called John the Baptist, that's this bridge from the old to the new. And so they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Zechariah's whole life has been preparation. And now he's overflowing with joy. Their waiting has not been in vain. There's one thing we know about the message of Christmas. It's that God shows up in such a, a remarkable and unexpected way that Jesus is born in a manger, in a place we didn't expect Him, to a family we couldn't anticipate. And so the message of Christmas is always, if God can show up like this, if He can show up here, then He can show up anywhere. And so perhaps you need that right now in your expectant waiting. You need to remember and you need the message of Christmas like we all do, that if God can show up like this, He can show up anywhere. Now, the second thing, what the young child means. It might seem odd to kind of do a whole Christmas service on the birth of a baby who's not Jesus. I don't know if you feel that, like we're celebrating the birth of John the Baptist, but that's really where the Gospels begin. The Gospels begin not with the birth of Jesus, but they begin with the birth of this prophet, his cousin, John the Baptist. And so what does the baby John mean and, and why does it matter? It, it matters not only because of who he is, but who he points to. That his whole life is, is pointing towards Jesus. The angel that came to Zechariah earlier in Luke 1 said, He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will go on before the Lord to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I'm sure you know a little bit about John the Baptist. Interesting guy. I mean, what we learn from Mark chapter 1 is that he lived his entire adult life out in the wilderness. Totally separate from society. He had one outfit, like the camel hair one. That was just his Thing, I mean, like early, you know, simplicity. He's a minimalist from the beginning. 
And as soon as he appears publicly, people recognize him as a true prophet. I mean, he just begins to speak and people are gathered. He really only has one message, which is repent and be baptized. Prepare yourself, Jesus is coming, and people flock to him. They see that this is somebody new. This is somebody different. This is a true prophet. This is, for the first time in generations, somebody who's speaking the words of God. John knew exactly who he was. John knew that his whole life was preparation. His whole life was a fulfillment of a particular passage of Scripture from the Old Testament, Isaiah 40 which says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. That's Isaiah 40 and all the Gospels identify this with John, John the Baptist. So he knew exactly who he was. His whole life was like a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. I mean, just one purpose, one message. He knows exactly what he is doing on earth. He said this in Mark 1, 7 and 8. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John's whole life is a sort of running ahead and, and preparing the way for Jesus. He's a, a forerunner, you know, one that, that runs ahead, not like the Toyota. I've, I've owned two forerunners, and so every time I say forerunner, it gets stuck in my mind, but he's a, a forerunner. He, he runs ahead. His whole purpose in life is to prepare a way for the Lord. The best John the Baptist verse, though, it comes in John 3. There's this moment where Jesus is, is gaining popularity and people are flocking to him. And yet John's disciples, he has his own disciples and they come to him and they're, they're frustrated that Jesus is now gathering larger crowds than they are. And they express, uh, certainly John is disappointed by this as well. And this is John's response. He says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice, that joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. If you're looking for a mission statement in life, you probably can't do any better than this. He must become greater and I must decrease. That's John's whole life. And what Jesus says about him is remarkable. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this about John, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And so that's pretty high praise and, and from a pretty reliable source. Jesus is saying that the best thing you can do with your life is commit yourself to the increase of me, of the Lord Jesus. And that often requires your own personal decrease. And so that's what the child means. He's not the Messiah, but he is the one after all these years that will prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the third and final thing, how we can respond. We've got a few things. First of all, sing your heart out. Sing your heart out in and, and, and remembrance, just like Zechariah, just like Mary, of all the things God has done, 
all the things God is doing, all the things that God will do. Zechariah just overflows with praise as the the Holy Spirit comes on him. This spontaneous song comes out of him that we've remembered and sang for 2,000 years. It's this beautiful demonstration of a, a life devoted to God, a heart that's set on God. It's overflowing in praise. And the thing is that everything that Zechariah could sing about, everything that Mary could sing about, it's all just as true for us as well. That God has made a way, that God has not forgotten us, that God has not moved on with his plan past us, but instead he is doing something and we get to be a part of it. For every reason that they sang, we can sing as well. Come, let us adore him. Let all within us praise his holy name. And so here's the second thing. It's like it. Embrace the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've noticed in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit shows up four different times. In fact, the Holy Spirit shows up all over the Gospel of Luke. It's the Spirit-filled Gospel. There are more references and appearances of the Spirit than in the other three Gospels. But in verse 15, it says that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born. Verse 35, Mary is filled with the Holy Spirit as she prepares to become the mother of Jesus. Verse 41, it says, when Elizabeth saw Mary, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed her, blessed Mary. And in our passage, verse 67, it says, the Holy Spirit came on Zechariah, and that's when he was able to sing. The message is that people that are full of the Holy Spirit overflow in praise. This is what the Holy Spirit does throughout the Gospels, throughout the Scriptures. He points people to Jesus. He fills them with joy and with peace. He causes them to overflow into a life of praise and prayer and obedience to God. That's what the Holy Spirit does as we make space for Him, as we embrace His role in our lives. And so embrace the Holy Spirit. The third thing, the third thing is not quite as fun. It's a little bit more difficult. The first two were fun. This one's difficult. Embrace your own decrease. I think John's words are, are incredibly important, incredibly difficult, but they're, they're also sort of a, a key to contentment for us, a key to joy and, and peace in this world. When he says he must increase and I must decrease, this is one of the hardest things for us to say. I mean, I think about it in our own lives, or at least in my own life, I I can't stand suffering any amount of decrease, you know? It's like I just want, I just assume that everything in life will continually increase. I mean, better, better job, better pay, bigger house, newer car, growing investments, like everything should just be growing all the time forever and amen. And so as a result, anytime there's an ounce of decrease, I mean, it's like we lose our stuff, or at least I do. We lose a friend, we lose a relationship, we lose some money, we, we lose some income, we lose a job, and we just, we lose our stuff. Now, an amount of grief is, is good and right. There's good grief that, that, that is aware of the loss and the pain of losing something, but then there's this, this just deep core pain associated with decrease, and it's often because we've, we've envisioned ourselves just continually increasing, increasing, increasing. And so any amount of decrease cuts us to the core. And so Jesus flips all of this on his head when he arrives. 
He says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are characterized not by what they have, by what they've accomplished or achieved, but blessed are those who are characterized by what they don't have, by what they lack, by what they need. It's the people most in need that get the most of Jesus. So in our passage, we see Zechariah. He willingly takes his own decrease. He's willing to to fade into the background. He says, this is not simply the son of Zechariah. This is John. He will do greater things than me. And just as Zechariah faded into the background, so John says, my reputation is on the decrease. People are leaving my thing. I mean, I'm losing popularity here. And that's exactly what I want. Because John can say, my whole purpose in life, my one thing in life is the increase of Jesus and his kingdom. In Isaiah 9, the prophecy about Jesus' birth, it says, of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. What that's literally saying is that the kingdom of Jesus will increase and increase and increase forever and all time to infinity and beyond, you know, like forever, the kingdom of Jesus will continually be expanding and increasing, no matter what. Like whether we're a part of it or not, that's what's going to happen. The kingdom is going to increase. And that's why I think this is a a sort of key to contentment in life. Because if Jesus' kingdom is expanding and increasing forever, if that becomes our one goal and our one thing in life, then no matter how much we lose, no matter how much we mess up, it's like we're good. Success. I mean, you could have the worst day possible. You could lose unimaginable things. And yet, if your one mission is the increase of Jesus' kingdom, it's like, that was a successful day. You know, one for one. Had one thing, increase of Jesus' kingdom, and it happened. It doesn't mean the losses don't hurt. But they don't cut us to the core the way they would otherwise. He must increase and I must decrease. The final thing is to prepare him room. Just as John was a a forerunner to Jesus, we in the same way are forerunners of our Lord. The posture is expectant waiting. It's not total stillness. It's, It's a type of waiting and running ahead. We wait for the Lord, but we also prepare the way for the Lord. And the reason for this is because we are between these two advents, two arrivals, two comings of our King. The first advent that we celebrate at Christmas was the birth of Jesus as as a little boy in a manger in a far-off place in total humility and meekness. And yet the second advent in His arrival, it'll it'll come in a totally different way. Jesus comes riding from the clouds on a white horse, to judge the living and the dead, to bring about the renewal of all things. And so we live between these two advents, remembering the first and longing for the second. And in that space is the expectant waiting. It's the going ahead. It's the preparing room for Jesus, preparing room in our hearts, preparing other people to live with Jesus. That's the essence of ministry. It's to prepare space for Jesus in people's lives. Now we remember that if there was anyone who didn't need to experience decrease, it's Jesus, right? The Son of God who would eternally forever be on the increase. 
Even he said, I don't come to be served, but to serve. He was the one born to set thy people free. Jesus experienced decrease even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus became as we are fully human so that we might be as he is a child of God, free from sin and death. And that's why we say, let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray.